Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. In this episode, we meet two world experts in the development of tandem solar cells. They explain why this new technology has a bright future. And I also chat with the award-winning author, broadcaster and physicist Paul Davies about what he sees as the most important cosmic questions facing humankind. But first, a message from our sponsor. This podcast is sponsored by the Electrochemical Society, or ECS, which is official publishing partner of the Institute of Physics and Physics World. Would you like to learn about the latest breakthroughs in electrochemistry? The 240th ECS meeting brings together the most active researchers in academia, government, and industry, professionals and students, to engage, discuss, and innovate in the areas of electrochemistry and solid-state science and technology. Michael Hecht from the MIT Haystack Observatory delivers the ECS lecture, Electrolysis on Mars, MOXIE and the Perseverance Mission, along with award presentations on fuel cells for affordable zero-emissions vehicles, pitting corrosion, and future directions for batteries as guidance for future innovation. The all-virtual event runs from October 10th to October 14th. Attendee registration is free. For more information or to register, please visit www.electrochem.org forward slash 240 to learn more. Today, there's no shortage of popular books about physics. But that certainly wasn't the case when our first guest was starting out as a science writer in the 1970s, as a pioneer of the genre. I'm joined down the line from Arizona State University by the physicist, science writer, and broadcaster, Paul Davies. Hi, Paul. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, and uh, thank you for inviting me on. Well, it's it's a pleasure to have you on, Paul. Um, you, you've written dozens of popular science books on topics as diverse as the relationship between science and religion, time travel, and the search for alien intelligence. What inspires you to write about a specific topic? That's an interesting question, because uh, when, when I was at school, I barely scraped through English as a qualification. I never saw myself as a natural writer. Uh, And it was really only when I had to sit down and write my PhD thesis some years later uh, that I realized that the importance of clear communication uh, was paramount. Uh, There is a problem in science to uh, somehow obfuscate the key points with technicalities. I don't know if it's a defense mechanism or whatever it is, but right from the start, I brought into both my uh, technical research paper writing and my more expository writing, this commitment to uh, clarity combined with excitement. Because after all, if you can't grab the reader's attention, uh, they're not going to read what you write, however beautifully written it is. Right at at the outset, I found that a congenial path. The other thing I should say is that writing is a sort of therapy, and I find uh, if I'm not 100% sure about something, if I write an article about it, or better still, a book, uh, it really helps me unpack my own thoughts and set them out. Uh, And uh, in terms of the subject matter, well, as you've said, uh, there are many books, and Uh, From time to time, I think, well, I've written about everything I know about. (laughs) And my wife says to me, uh, no, 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 go back to some of those earlier topics because they're of perennial interest. Uh, But it sort of followed my research in the early days. I did uh, work on the arrow of time as part of my PhD thesis. And my very first book, which was a technical book, was The Physics of Time Asymmetry. But uh, then over the years, I wrote at a more and more accessible level. And 
kept revisiting that topic. Uh, and that's part and parcel of Einstein's theory of relativity, which is a sort of wonderland of ideas. And I think everybody's intrigued by the notion of sort of time warp and uh, time travel and these things. Uh, but a colleague of mine said in the late 70s, and I'm that old, uh, oh, you think uh, uh, the theory of relativity is mind-blowing, but quantum mechanics, you know, leaves leaves it to shame. And so I thought, well, yes, really, I should be uh, popularizing that at the time. Almost nobody had written any popular books on quantum mechanics. Now, of course, uh, there, there are hundreds of them. Uh, and so I sort of drifted into that. Um, and then in later years, I became interested in what's now called astrobiology, search for life beyond Earth and the origin of life, the transition from non-life to life. And so naturally, I found myself writing about that. Uh, and so it does rather reflect my own research interests at the time. Uh, and, and you might think, well, these are all sort of different topics all over the map. But actually, they do link up deep down in my own mind. Uh, they, they're a deep connection. And I try to bring those out in my writing. Your latest book is, is called What's Eating the Universe? And it looks at 30 cosmic questions facing humankind. Now, so, some of these mysteries have proven very difficult to crack, despite um, the huge amount of effort that's being put into solving them. Now, now you mentioned that you, uh, you, you were working as a physicist in the 1970s. Are you surprised, uh, for example, that um, we, we still know very little about things like dark matter, for example, despite having built huge and expensive dark matter detectors and, and spending a lot of time searching for it? Well, what really does surprise me is the cosmology has done so well. As you mentioned, my extreme age, uh, when, when I was a student and I said I wanted to go into cosmology for my research, uh, it was very, very hard. I, I actually couldn't find a university department that was prepared to take me to do a PhD in cosmology. They said, well, there's nothing you can do, really. It's not a proper subject. It's a speculative backwater. Uh, and, um, you know, come back in a few years. Uh, and all of that has been transformed. So instead of being, uh, uh, the, the phrase people used to say is a speculation, there's speculation squared, and then there's cosmology. Instead of being that speculative backwater, it's turned into an amazingly precise science. We've nailed down so many parameters of the universe in great detail. And I was skeptical uh, about this, oh, probably into the uh, 1980s. I remember going to a lecture by Jim Peebles, who recently got the Nobel Prize for his work in cosmology, and uh, hearing a sort of rundown of the various outstanding problems and the difficulties of measuring things and the error bars and so on. I can remember saying to Martin Rees, oh, I didn't realize cosmology was in such a bad shape. And he said, I think it's in a wonderful shape. It's making huge progress. And I, uh, and I sort of sat up and took notice. I always take everything Martin says seriously. And, you know, sure enough, in the subsequent 20 years, particularly, and I need to explain how this has happened, uh, that the universe is filled with radiation left over from the Big Bang. It's like a fading afterglow of that primeval phase. And it, it bathes the whole universe, and it's very, very uniform. Uh, but there are tiny variations which were uh, predicted early on, and I had myself uh, a hand in, in predicting those, uh, but then subsequently measured with a satellite called Cosmic Background Explorer. That was in the 1980s. And then uh, other satellites, and there's now one called Planck, which is mapping this radiation to extraordinary detail. So it's really a heat map of the sky with all the little tiny variations in temperature etched into those patterns are clues about how the universe began, about its state in the first split second. Uh, and so uh, by combining that with now the enormous ability of large telescopes to do these sort of huge surveys to map the distribution of matter in the universe and so on, we can put together a very convincing picture. But you raise the question of some things which remain outstanding. Uh, the only way we can really consistently put together everything we know about the large-scale structure of the universe is by assuming that most of what's out there uh, is actually uh, unseen and unknown at this time. Uh, we tend to think that the universe, where, where you talk about astronomy, people think of stars, maybe gas and dust or something. That's only 
a tiny fraction, a few percent of the total amount of stuff that is there, uh, about a quarter of the mass of the universe is some sort of material, uh, probably particles with individual masses much greater than protons, for example, uh, but interacting so weakly with ordinary matter that they just go straight through us all the time. Uh, as we're sitting here, we're being penetrated by these dark matter particles uh, flying in from the universe. It's sort of a creepy thought that they're going through us all the time. But of course, we don't feel a thing. Uh, and therein lies the problem. How do you detect something uh, which is so ghostly that it hardly registers? And uh, the answer is, well, you spend a lot, a lot of money. And as you have pointed out, uh, people have uh, devised a number of experiments that would detect the telltale sign of the passage of a dark matter particle if it collided, say, with an atomic nucleus, very, very rarely would be something that would happen um, uh, only infrequently, and you have to look very carefully uh, to see if you can register such an event. And so far, nothing. So nobody has uh, detected it. The other way that you might hope to detect a particle like that is to make it, make it in the lab, say at the Large Hadron Collider, a giant accelerator machine uh, in Switzerland that smashes protons together at enormous energy, energies. And what you might hope uh, to come out of that, in, in addition to all the particles that fly out that we know and love, would be one of these dark matter particles. But again, so far, there's nothing. So uh, that is a bit of a mystery. Uh, it's um, I can remember people talking about this back in the 80s, and it seemed at that time that it wouldn't be long before uh, this candidate was identified. And I might say that there may be more than one thing. It could be there's a whole community of particles and uh, other things that contribute to this uh, dark, um, dark matter, but we know it's there. We know it's there because of the gravitational effect. We can see uh, the way stars move around the Milky Way, they're moving too fast to be held together by the masses of the other stars. There, there must be some unseen stuff pulling on them, holding them in orbit, and the same between the galaxies. So there, there's good evidence from just the way objects move, that there's a lot of dark stuff, but we really don't know what it is. It's on my list of things that I imagine any day soon we're going to have the answer. I don't see it as one of these... Um, really deep questions like what happened before the Big Bang, for example, which I also write about in the book. We may never know that. It, it may be that that is simply sort of off the edges of any conceivable science we could do. But nailing down what dark matter is is something we surely can do. And I wouldn't be surprised uh, any, any day uh, to find that that problem is solved. Now, Paul, you, you touched earlier on the so, sort of the challenge of, of, of explaining quantum mechanics um, to, to a lay audience. Um, over the past 10 or, or maybe 20 years, there's been a sort of a renaissance in the interest in uh, the fundamentals of quantum mechanics. And that's been driven by uh, interest in quantum computers, the, the development of new quantum technologies. Do, do you think that our understanding uh, of the quantum world has become deeper and more profound because of this blossoming? Or are, are we still sort of scratching our heads as we were in the days of Heisenberg and Schrodinger? Well, we are scratching our heads. Uh, that, that is to say, in spite of uh, a much better grasp of what quantum mechanics is about and some magnificent experiments that were back in the 30s, just thought experiments, uh, just uh, ways of getting people to think about what can be going on here, are now real experiments. They're actually being done. Uh, and so there's been an enormous advance, but there is still no agreed uh, interpretation of what, what is going on in quantum mechanics, of the nature of reality at the atomic level. And now this source I think sound very mystical, uh, but it's not. Uh, let me just give you an example. Um, we, we have this simple model of an atom, of a nucleus with an electron whirling around it. And you might think, well, um, I know it would be hard to find out, but let me imagine at this particular moment now uh, is the electron uh, on top of the nucleus or underneath it. You know, where, where, is, where would it be? And you might think, well, we may never know, uh, but you assume it must be somewhere. Uh, and quantum mechanics tells you uh, that that isn't isn't so. You cannot uh, say. You cannot give 
a precise answer to that, that the nature of reality at the atomic level uh, is uh, simply fuzzy and indeterminate. And it's not just our ignorance. It's not that we are clumsy and we don't have the refinement to be able to spot what's going on. Uh, it's that nature is intrinsically indeterministic or fuzzy at that level. Uh, and so the question is, when we actually make a measurement, we say, well, let's see where the electron is. And you find it, it is somewhere, an electron at a place. Um, what happened? How, how did that happen? How did we go from this fuzzy indeterminism to a concrete result? Um, and there's no agreement, really, on how we should think about that. Uh, that remains an open question. Uh, and, and this is now, as you correctly pointed out, uh, put into sharper relief because we can now build gadgets uh, which could uh, potentially be uh, tra transforming, technology transforming devices based on these funny goings-on down at the atomic level. Uh, there are things like quantum teleportation and quantum cryptography and then this holy grail, you mentioned quantum computing, all of which uh, would have sweeping consequences. Um, I have to say, you don't need to come up with the answer to that philosophical question about the nature of reality uh, to be able to make a buck from building you know, a practical quantum computer. Uh, but it does mean if you're designing some system, you might think, oh, quantum computers accumulate errors just from sort of random noise in their environment. Uh, so uh, could you correct those errors by measuring things and then going back and changing something? You have to think very carefully. Uh, every time you do a measurement, you interfere or interrupt the system. Uh, and, and so it, you do have to have a very deep grasp of what is and is not possible in that realm. Uh, if I want to be most dramatic about this whole quantum nature of reality, the way I would describe it is uh, in the following way. I've said that quantum mechanics has indeterminism at its heart or uncertainty, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. What does that mean? You fire an electron at an atom and it bounces to the left. You do it again under identical circumstances and it bounces to the right. And you can never know in advance, is it going to go left or right? But you can work out the betting odds. Quantum mechanics gives you that ability. Uh, maybe it'll be 30% to the left, 70% to the right. And you can test that over a large number of trials. And it works. That's just fine. But in any individual case, you can't say. So how do we think about that? Well, one way is to imagine that at the beginning, there are two parallel worlds, uh, which are identical. Can't tell them apart. Uh, but then you do the experiment. The electron goes to the left in one and the right in the other. You've now got two worlds slightly different. Uh, you, you, either they bifurcated or they differentiated. And so one way of thinking about quantum mechanics is an infinite number of parallel realities, uh, each one a trajectory into the future. Uh, and by trajectory, I don't just mean at the atomic level, but the entire universe uh, with all of those uh, 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 countless little interactions uh, being duplicated again and again. It sounds crazy. It sounds like this is some Alice in Wonderland absurdity. But that particular explanation, which was a, a rarity when I was a student, is now the explanation of choice or the interpretation of choice among my distinguished colleagues, the parallel universe's interpretation of quantum mechanics. used to be just a sort of crazy thing that you spoke about over coffee. Now it uh, seems to be the way people want to go. I'm not convinced myself personally, but that gives you some idea of the sort of weird territory you get into when you dabble in quantum mechanics. When you say that it's become the, the most popular flavor, is that, um, is that because of the sort of quantum technology that's been developed um, over, the, over the past few decades? Is, is that pointing theorists that are in, in that direction, or is it more of a philosophical shift? Uh, no, it's actually a cultural shift, and I tell you how it came about. And in large measure, I think this was uh, due to Stephen Hawking and his uh, co collaborator, James Hartle. Um, that back in the uh, early 1980s, um, uh, let me just say that Hawking, of course, had become famous for applying quantum mechanics to black holes. Uh, but uh, he didn't apply them to the black holes as such. He applied them to the things like the electromagnetic field uh, around the black hole. Uh, applying quantum mechanics to an actual gravitating object is notoriously difficult for quantum gravity. Well, the biggest gravitating object we have is the universe. Can you apply quantum mechanics to the whole universe? Uh, where I've talked about an electron wave. Can you have a wave for the universe, 
a wave function for the universe, it's called. And Hartland Hawking said, uh, yes, you can do that. You can, you can write down, uh, uh, you know, as a theoretical exercise, you can write down an equation that describes uh, a quantum mechanical wave function of the universe. And then they did some manipulations to suggest the form it might have and so on. But uh, at, immediately at that point, you have to think, well, who's around to measure that wave function? I talked about, well, you can measure, did the electron go to the left or the right, or is it up here or down there? You can do a measurement, get an answer. And that's because the quantum system, like the electron and the atom, is down there, and I'm up here, and I'm outside that system. But there's nothing outside the universe. There's nothing to sort of measure it. And so how do you make sense of applying quantum mechanics to the universe as a whole? So this subject of quantum cosmology which hasn't progressed very far, but there's been a lot of effort uh, put into it, um, really forces you down the path of assuming that uh, all of the different uh, branches of the wave function or parallel universes or parallel trajectories of the universe, whatever you, you want to call it, that they're all equally real somehow, and that each comes with observers who think that they're in a unique world, but actually there's an infinite number of parallel realities. And because uh, of people like Hawking and their uh, distinction uh, uh, opted for this, and I should mention some other names, um, Murray Gell-Mann, uh, for example, famous Nobel Prize-winning physicist. Uh, uh, he, you know, he thought, well, yes, this is the way to go. And the list goes on. And so because quantum cosmology became really a rather entropic, bit of a bandwagon, I, I, I should say, but nevertheless, a lot of very distinguished uh, physicists went into it then they pretty much had to, uh, by default, uh, support this many universes interpretation of quantum mechanics. Uh, I've said I'm a skeptic, um, and I re remain so. Uh, over coffee with my distinguished colleagues, I probably wouldn't, uh, wouldn't make too much of that. I would sort of go with the flow. Mm -hmm. Now, Paul, there's, there's lots of fantastic ideas floating around in the physics community. And... Um, there's probably some listeners to this podcast, physicists who thinking about writing a book, um, you know, perhaps about one of these topics. What uh, what advice would you give to a to a budding author who who happens to be a physicist and wants to write about science? Where, where should they begin? I love your question because um, uh, you know I'm getting to the end of my life and my career, and I've uh, written a lot of books, and I I doubt I'm going to write. Uh, the same number in the future. And so we, we want the young people. We I really, really want to encourage yeah, youngsters. Uh, when I was a, a student, I should say, it was very much frowned upon. Uh, the, uh, in fact, a colleague of mine said, well, every popular book you, you write, you should subtract 10 from your uh, paper publication list because it's <laughs> a sort of negative effect. All that went away uh, in the 1980s. Why did it go away? Uh, I think, again, it was Stephen Hawking and A Brief History of Time uh, became a sensational bestseller. And I think people felt, well, it was all right for Hawking, it's all right for me. Uh, and universities began to see that actually, uh, if you want to recruit uh, students who are fired up about something, it's a good idea to write popular books. So I do encourage young people listening to me now um, uh, to take it seriously. But of course, um, it's it's tough. And what do you write about? So uh, I, I think... Inevitably, uh, uh, just revisiting the old topics. You can do that. You could say, oh, I'll write a book on black holes or something. Um, and you could do that. And, uh, and I'm sure, you know, it would sell a bit and not going to be a bestseller, unlikely, unless you find a really weird angle on it. Um, you, could, you can do that. And probably for limbering up, you know, if a, a budding uh, physicist wants to sort of, you know, try out their writing skills, pick something safe and something that won't be too time consuming because you mustn't forget your real job which is to do uh, theoretical physics research um, but to get to the the core of your question uh, what's the next big thing and i have long felt uh, that well i say long uh, probably in the last 10 years uh, that the real excitement is actually the boundaries of the, the subject it's where uh, physics chemistry computing uh, biology uh, and nanotechnology intersect. Uh, and, and that uh, area, there's no name. We, we don't have a subject uh, for, for that. But that is really where uh, there are exciting things happening. Um, 
for example, the transition from non-life to life is something I'd be very preoccupied with. I still am. I think we don't fully understand that. I think there might be new physics lurking in living matter. Uh, written extensively about that. I don't. I can't be sure what it is, but it's sort of at the same place as where quantum effects begin to to uh, give over to the classical world. Um, we're talking about uh, a domain now that can can be explored experimentally. So again, there have been huge advances in technology that people can really look at chemical reactions, uh, you know, before your very eyes. They they can build nanostructures uh, to order. Uh, they can look at um, what's going on inside uh, solids and more complex systems, carry out quantum experiments with really quite complex molecules. You know, all of this area, uh, which has huge potential as well for um, practical applications. That's the area that I think I would want to get into. Uh, and that's, if you want a really ambitious writing project, that's the one to capture. Uh, but uh, but uh, we really do like a name. Uh, uh, we need a name like cybernetics, which was invented for the crossover between humans and uh, machines back in the in the fifties. Uh, and you know, you've got a, once you've got a, a word, uh, then you're partway there. But uh, we don't we don't have a word for this uh, this intersection of all those disciplines. And so is that is that what you're fired up about right now? Is your your next book? Is it going to be on uh, on that, or, or are you looking at something else? It was actually my last book called "The Demon in the Machine," uh, which uh, dealt with that issue. Uh, and so I felt that was uh, and and anyone wanting to write about this should read that book because you see uh, it it's not one of these books that this has been a mystery and I've explained it and here's the explanation. It's more. Um, all of these things are deeply troubling for the following reasons. And this is the agenda. This is how we move it forward. This is we have to try and understand how inf what is information and how does information uh, couple to matter in complex systems and in simple systems. Uh, does information lie at the heart of physics because it lies at the heart of biology? Uh, is that the glue that sticks physics and biology together? Um, uh, uh, you know, I, put, I just put it out there because I feel that that is where uh, uh, the research needs to go. And yes, I am fired up about it. And I had wonderful colleagues here at Arizona State University uh, just yesterday was discussing this very topic. And again, we, we lack a word. What is it's not origin of life. It's much more than that. It's something about the crossover or the transition uh, from simple to complex, from non-living to living. Um, from theory to experiment, I, you know, we, we're, we're looking for a word. But I think, yes, it's very exciting. And I think that's, that's where the, the action will be in science generally, but particularly in physical science, in the next uh, 20 or 30 years. Yeah, that that does sound like like a really interesting uh, thing to write about. So uh, that's that that's a great tip, Paul. Thank you. And and if if you happen to be in London uh, on the eighteenth and nineteenth of September, do check out the How the Light Gets In Festival, where Paul will be joined by Laura Mersini Houghton, Lee Smolin, and Philip Ball in a discussion about whether the laws of physics are fixed or in flux. The event is on the grounds of Kenwood House on Hampstead Heath, which sounds lovely, and hopefully it'll be a nice weekend. Normally the middle of September is pretty good in London, so uh, I, I, I'm looking forward to it. Thanks for joining me, Paul. Oh, it's been my pleasure. An interesting discussion. Thank you. Over the past three decades, the global generating capacity of photovoltaic cells has grown near exponentially, and it will soon exceed one terawatt. To keep this trend going, researchers are keen on boosting the efficiency of solar cells. Physics World's Margaret Harris meets two of them. We apologize that this recording does have some microphone noise that could not be fully eliminated. Regular listeners to the podcast may remember that a few weeks ago we spoke with an expert on hybrid perovskite solar cells, Julia Grancini. 
During that interview, Julia mentioned that it's possible to improve the efficiency of solar cells by combining a perovskite solar cell with one made from silicon. The result is called a tandem solar cell, and I'm pleased to say that we've got a couple of world experts on tandem solar cells here in the virtual studio. They are Laura Miranda Perez and Chris Case, and they work for a company called Oxford PV, which will soon be producing tandem solar cells as a commercial product. In other words, something you can buy and stick on your roof. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I got it. Good morning, or <laughs> whatever time it is. Okay, so Chris, you're the chief technology officer at Oxford PV. Maybe you could start by telling us a bit about why silicon-based solar cells are, well, let's say less than ideal. What are the drawbacks of silicon solar cells? So, you know, silicon, I think, is the second most abundant element in the Earth's crust. Maybe it's 28% by mass. It's also the material from which 95% of solar cells are fabricated. It is, however, as you said, not an ideal solar cell material. Its adoption can actually be traced back to the early days of the semiconductor electronics industry, and the silicon for solar cells was really an outgrowth of the convenience and industrialization uh, from uh, silicon electronics. Actually, the first solid-state solar cells were made from selenium, in the 1890s or 1880s. In the 1930s, germanium, from which the first transistor was fabricated, was actually the leading solar cell candidate, until silicon and its native oxide replaced germanium for electronics. So silicon's band gap is actually sits too far into the red part of the solar spectrum to be an ideal absorber of solar photons. It's also an indirect gap semiconductor, so some of the energy is wasted in band transitions. And because of limited carrier mobility in a lifetime, it needs to be very pure in order to reduce carrier recombination rates. And yet, as I said, it's 95% of solar cells. It's what you see on the rooftops everywhere. So after more than 65 years of improvements on the efficiency and, and reducing costs of these solar cells since the first commercial silicon cell was announced by at t Bell Labs in 1954, the conversion efficiency has been pushed up from a around 6% to over 26% for research devices today. Unfortunately, physics has something to say here. There is a limiting efficiency for any solar cell, and for silicon, it's around 29%. So this limit was described back in 1961 in a seminal paper by Bill Shockley, yes, that's the transistor Shockley, and Hans-Joachim Kleiser, who also worked at Bell Labs and also worked at Shockley's transistor company and uh, later worked on gallium arsenide, which is the best solar cell material. And he was the founder of the Max Planck Institute in Stuttgart. And then he described this uh, efficiency limit of solar cells. But in that same paper, they also described some workarounds, ways to increase the efficiency beyond these thermodynamic limits. So they said you could concentrate the sun's photons, uh, you use mirrors and lenses, so that's concentrated photovoltaics, uh, which have been demonstrated many times over the years, but have all really been commercial failures. Uh, you could use a concept called uh, singlet fission, where you could sort of split the higher energy uh, photons into uh, two types of lower energy photons. But actually the proposal that was most interesting is you could use a concept of multiple junctions. And the idea was you could stack different band gap materials on top of each other, each of which was focused on a different part of the solar spectrum, where it was most effective at converting solar photons. And in the most basic form, two solar cells stacked together. It's a multi-junction solar cell, but with just two, it's called a tandem solar cell. And that's the product that we're actually making. It's this tandem solar cell where we take a relatively new material, and relatively new means for the photovoltaic industry, it's about 10 or so years old, called perovskites, which we can adjust its band gap, and we put that solar cell material directly on top of an ordinary silicon solar wafer, again, the kind you see on rooftops everywhere. Uh, but when you do that, the limiting efficiency jumps from 29% to over 43% a complete transformation in the potential for the conversion efficiency of the solar cell device, yet it still looks and feels like an ordinary solar cell. And that's a bit of what we think our innovation was about. 
And it wasn't really the material because somebody else came up with the perovskite for photovoltaics. It certainly wasn't the concept of the multi-junction solar cell because that was described back in 61, 1961. And basically all space solar cells are multi-junction solar cells but they're fabricated with very expensive compound semiconductors appropriate for space applications, not appropriate to solve uh, the world's energy crisis for terrestrial applications. Uh, so this concept allows making an inexpensive deployment of material. And of course, what we're going to talk about a little bit later is why this material can be deployed at such great scale and inexpensively. Okay, that's probably a good place to bring Laura in. So you're head of materials at Oxford PV. You know, why did you pick this particular combination of materials, the silicon with the perovskite? Uh, I understand there's several adva several advantages. Maybe you could just talk us f through a few of them. Yeah. So what well, as Chris just mentioned, we the, the perovskite was uh, already there. It was it's not a new material. In fact, it's a very old material, but it is um, can adopt uh, many different forms depending on the composition. And what was discovered before was that these uh, special perovskites, which is a combination of organic and inorganic components in a in a perovskite, um, were very good absorbers for solar applications. So that was uh, the the beginning a bit of the company, and in, later on we decided to use this material for perovskite on silicon applications to due to everything that Chris just just discussed. So the advantages of having this material is that it's a material that forms uh, with a very low energy requirement, so it has a very low enthalpy formation energy. And it's also very tolerant to defects. What this means is that it can be deposited or processed with many different uh, uh, tools, and it leads to materials that are highly efficient anyway. And that makes this very uh, flexible to combine with, the, for example, the wafer-based type of silicon cells. We can use existing manufacturing tools and adapt them for the perovskite that are still compatible with the silicon lines. Um, and the fact that the material can have a, a high level of, of defects makes the, the process being quite cost-efficient, let's say. So this is this is in terms of processing and, and the approach of why did we apply this material, but also one of the advantages is that it's easily tunable to achieve band gaps that are compatible with the silicon as a, as a bottom cell. The composition of this material can be changed. We can tune it. There is a lot of uh, work done on that in the literature and many optical models that, that um, kind of uh, predict, which is the ideal band gap, and that can be used to then tune it in the lab. And it's very, very easy to, to achieve the ideal band gap. So, so there is a combination of the chemical nature, the structure of the material, its flexibility, and, and the, the tolerance to the flex that makes it ideal for an application like this. We have something that can adapt itself to an existing technology like silicon and that's why the the idea came and and we started working on that seven years ago um, and that's from the material size i think i covered a bit of the 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 ideas we gave in the in our manuscript the, we recently published this paper where we wanted to give the perspective of why we think this approach is the the best one as a as a technology and as a breaking point technology where efficiencies really high efficiencies can be achieved. So that that uh, paper touches on um, things other than just material science and the manufacturing. I think it also mentions the sustainability of the of the um, of the material um, and the importance of of you know, having enough of it out there to be able to uh, make massive numbers of solar cells. Yes. So, I mean, we work in solar cells. We want to, well, our main goal is to be able to develop a technology that can bring an energy that is uh, cheaper for everybody and is sustainable. We want everybody to be able to, to afford using this technology and also it has to be done in a sustainable way we will we wouldn't want it any other way so 
what we did first, uh, there are many, many approaches to sustainability, but one of the key things when you are bringing a new product to the market is, can we make it? Are we going to deploy or deplete any of the resources that are required to make this new technology? That's one of the things that we put a lot of effort initially. We wanted to make sure that whatever was the composition, the final elements in this technology, they were readily available and, and they were abundant in the earth crust and, and ready to be used. So we did a full study and we compare our technologies with other technologies. And one of the, well, I, I think it was kind of a surprise is that even being silicon, the second element that is more abundant, still in a perovskite on silicon product will be the limiting factor in terms of uh, abundance. Yes. So that, that says a lot. It means that we are not going to deplete any, any of the resources. The materials are there. The elements are there. And, and in fact, we will want to extract them um, to, to, to cover for the needs of uh, uh, solar energy deployed in the next uh, 20 to 30 years. This, this could be done within three to five years' time. So, so it's, uh, it was a very, very promising uh, results and, and understanding for us for the technology because we, as I said, it needs to be sustainable. It's not that we want to, it's that it has to be sustainable to really reach the goals that we we put in ourselves when we started the plan, developing this. And then I think there's also sort of a, a business standpoint where, where you that went into this uh, choosing this particular combination of materials. And Chris, you mentioned that you know these the solar cells you're making they look like uh, the type of solar cells people are used to seeing. You know. How does that impact your decision of, of, of uh, which types of materials to use? The, the comment I would make there is this is an industry that's very conservative. And a reason it's conservative is predominantly it is an energy industry. People who provide the energy don't really care where it comes from. What they care about is what is its cost. And, you know, they build... Uh, production plants for energy, coal plants and, and gas plants and nuclear plants with long lives. And they want to be assured that over their investment horizon, they understand the cost of the energy that's being produced. So really, in a big field that you see with hundreds of megawatts of PV deployed, the people who own those energy systems don't even care if it's PV or well, sometimes I make a joke, hamsters spinning mini turbines. They just want to know how cheap the energy is. So people are very averse in, to change. And because there's so much risk involved for a product that has to last, you know, 15 to 30 years. And so we were afraid and wary of trying to tell the world we've got a new material that's so much better than silicon. And it is better fundamentally because it is a lower cost. Uh, it is more sustainable from the abundance standpoint, actually just the raw perovskite material. It's direct band gap. And you can make its band gap tuned even as a single solar cell to the ideal sparks in the solar spectrum to convert solar energy. So it's just better that way. Uh, but th this industry has resisted change. So actually, that's why silicon remains the uh, default standard for PV cells. There are some alternatives out there. One of the materials is cadmium telluride. Yet today, there's still only three or so percent of this alternative material. So silicon has that marketplace. So we decided that the best way to avoid disrupting the market, but still having innovation, was to bring in the material on the back of the existing incumbent material, silicon. And that's why this combination of silicon with the perovskite together in a form factor that looks like a regular solar cell was both disruptive because it's now producing more energy and it's higher efficiency than ordinary silicon, but also just easy for adoption by a manufacturer that might want to put the solar cells into solar modules. So it doesn't disrupt the business, right? Uh, but it does uh, does have the innovation of the device. So that, that was the concept. And I think it, it, we're, we still stand behind that concept. And I think today, if you look at the deployment of thin film materials as alternatives, including those people working on pure 
perovskite solar panels. They still face the, the challenge of why would you use another material when silicon is already working so well? As a tandem solar cell, though, it does something that silicon can't do. It can break those Shockley Quiser limits. You mentioned, I think, that that uh, the tandem solar cell has a theoretical maximum power conversion efficiency of about 43%. How close are you to, to getting there at the moment? Well, the good news is we're not that close at all. <laughs> no, and I say it that way because it means we're actually at the beginning of the journey of the increasing in efficiency. Remember, in 1954, silicon was 6%. And eventually, they reached 267 so it's 26.7 out of 29, if you think of it in those terms. So they got within 10% of the theoretical maximum. And you can't reach the maximum. You know, these are thermodynamic limits. There are always losses that are, are resistance losses that are just unavoidable. So if you use the same analogy, we should be able to get within 10% of 43. So close to 40%. Now, it took silicon more than 60 years on its journey. But in 10 years, this perovskite material has achieved what silicon achieved in roughly 30 or 40 years. So at the rate of improvement, we'll be able to sort of approach those high efficiencies much faster. But that's not today. Today, our record solar cell, certified record solar cell, is 29.5%. So it's above the Shockley-Quiser limit. It means we have a roadmap from our company to take this device you know, into 33, 35, and eventually in different combinations uh, to as high as 39%. So we have a long uh, 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 road ahead of us for improvements. So it's the beginning of this technology. What are some of the major barriers that remain to, that you're going to have to overcome to get up to that, you know, sort of 30 something percent efficiency that Chris is talking about? Well, I, I think that the answer is uh, within we, we just discussed is we are at the beginning. So the barriers are fundamental understanding of, of the technology. We are still miles away from what all the work that was done, for example, in silicon during decades. We we know a lot about these new materials. We They are developing fast. We've, it's been a really... Um, speed um, learning curve uh, going to the the values we are at the moment and but still there is a lot to to understand to 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 see what are the limitations what is what are the the steps that takes you from 30 to 33 to 35 or or even higher efficiency so so those are the the main barriers and i don't see them as a barriers because it's achievable it requires a lot of uh, uh, researchers and you know smart people working on on this, which there are hundreds at the moment, and it's the journey we have to go through. So, I think in terms of the you know technology itself, not the the materials, the technology itself. Um, one of the key things is to prove that the technology is uh, is, is ready for commercialization and and is a reliable technology. That is the, the main thing to that we have to do now, and we we are uh, ready to do. And once that is has happened, the rest is the development and the journey we have to go through to understand better and overcome any any limitations that uh, we have currently to achieve those efficiencies. Okay, so I mentioned in my intro uh, that you're hoping to be able to produce something you can buy as a commercial product and stick on your roof sometime soon. What's what's your latest timeline for that to happen? Uh, Margaret, maybe I'll just uh, respond to that query. So we have uh, constructed a factory in in Germany, just just west of Berlin, and it will be, I, we believe, the world's first perovskite silicon tandem solar cell manufacturing facility. Uh, it's not quite uh, up and running yet, but it's uh, it's been more or less completed, and we announced actually we had finished the build out. Uh, this is a location that we acquired about five years ago uh, to put in a pilot line. So we've been actually making our product in smaller quantities for the past five years. So this now represents a significant step up in output, and we expect to be producing. Uh, approximately 100 megawatts of these very high efficiency solar cells next year, and they will go into modules and be sold to customers and be made 
available to customers. I'd say probably not before the middle of next year, but uh, the, the interest is there. And the demand is, is definitely there. I mean, there is no alternative to the efficiency uh, barrier. I mean, all the people who make solar modules today have the same sort of commercial challenge. They are making a product that has reached its limit, so they're virtually indistinguishable from each other. And there is no real commercial high efficiency solar alternative uh, that, that's, that's uh, low cost uh, besides this particular product. So there's a tremendous interest and demand for this product. And remember, if you're in a situation where your space is constrained, like the rooftop of a house, right? There's no way to put more PV on that rooftop. You're constrained by space. And with this technology, you have the opportunity to put 20 to 25% more power on that rooftop. And we need more power and more renewable energy for this world. And so uh, the, the factory should, uh, should be up and running uh, next year. That's, that's our goal. Well, great. Well, thank you. Thank you both very much for, for coming to speak on the podcast. I really appreciate your, your time. Well, thank you for having us, Margaret. The, the future is all electric here. So the faster we move to that transition, the more we can address the climate crisis. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast, which is sponsored by the Electrochemical Society. Thanks to Paul Davies, Laura Miranda Perez, Chris Case, and Margaret Harris for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Callum Jelf. Please do join us again next week, but in the meantime, check out the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast, which is called We're All Going on a Geeky Holiday. Host Andrew Glester meets three people who are drawn to geeky holiday destinations. There's a radiation researcher who sings the praises of a vacation in Chernobyl, a yoga instructor who travels the world to experience solar eclipses, and a nutritional psychologist who recommends a visit to the Marconi Center in Cornwall. You can find all the stories podcasts on the Physics World website or on your favorite podcast app. Physics World.